listening to the Red Seat Podcast. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. Keaton DeRocher and Bob Osgood. Sale winds, he fires. Swing and a miss, right play, it's over. The Red Sox have won the world championship. Welcome back to the Red Sea Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux. And today I am joined not only by Keaton DeRocher and Bob Osgood of Over the Monster, but we have special guest Chad Jennings of The Athletic joining us for episode 284. If you're not familiar with Chad's work, you should be. But Chad is on Twitter, at ChadJennings22. Chad, welcome to the show. It's uh, It's been a couple of years since I first initially uh, tried to get you on the show, but we finally <laughs> landed you. So I feel like this is... This is a big achievement for us. <laughs> well, you got to aim bigger than that. Then I mean, this this can't be the big achievement. Come on, fellas. Uh, yeah, no, no, I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm sorry it took this long. Oh, well, we're just happy to have you on the show. You're uh, all all three of our uh, probably our favorite beat writer or the one that we talk about the most on this show. So your writings really resonated with us. We tend to do a lot of 40 man stuff on yeah. this particular show. So uh, a lot of your articles are a little bit more in depth about the forty man, and and that's really kind of what our listeners are used to. So, well, I don't know if anyone would care, but my background is I started covering the minor leagues. Like I covered the minors out of college for six and a half years, and oh, oh wow, my I was in Scranton, Pennsylvania, back when it was the Phillies, and then when the Yankees came in, and um, and that was I learned roster rules there. I found that was the way to cover the minors. Like the biggest thing you had to know is understand. 40-man rules because otherwise I mean if you, you can't look at a triple-a roster and think that call-ups are based entirely on who's playing the best so you you just start to figure out those rules and that that really helped me a lot and and I kind of still see things that way I, I I can't help thinking about you know that 38 39th and 40th spot on the roster and, and how much that can change that makes a ton of sense because actually all three of our backgrounds, uh, we all started writing when we started writing, we started writing about prospects first mm -hmm. before we got into the Red Sox too. So I think that's why we think of it similarly as well. So that's great. That, that, uh, makes a lot of sense. Why, why your writing resonates with us so much. Um, all right, let's start off with the first big question here. Um, this is now the fourth year under Heim Bloom's leadership. The results have been, I think it's fair to say, a little bit disappointing uh, over these four seasons. We've had one deep playoff run, but you know, a lot of relative mediocrity to to towards the bottom of the barrel. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, mediocrity might be the nice way of putting it for some of those years. Yeah, absolutely. Some of them were borderline unwatchable. And I think one of the big disappointments for a lot of fans, myself included, is that, you know, when Bloom took over this team, he had Betts, Xander, Devers, mm -hmm. all on the team. I think we all thought it was a bit of a pipe dream to be able to get all three of those guys locked up. Um, but, you know, only ending up with one of the three is a little bit tough. I know it's tough to start the show off on a little bit of a negative note here as the Red Sox are on a six-game winning streak, but they are still uh, fifth place in the division right now. So my question to you, Chad, is uh, what do you think Bloom has done poorly or failed to execute mm -hmm. 
in his job so far? Well, all right. So 2020 and Mookie, I, to me, to me, the, the 2020 is a total disaster, and it's and it's a debacle in every way. It, it to such a degree that I don't. In some ways, I give it a pass. I mean, it was just everything was a mess, and and they knew they were making the team bad. I mean, they weren't trying. There was no when you trade Mookie, you're not trying to pretend that you're you're going all in toward a championship that year. It, this was an attempt to reset, and and you know, look, did it work? I mean, I don't know. You know, Jeter Downs, they really needed him to be something, and he, I mean, <laughs> at least a little bit. Um, for that to, I think, have worked in a way that was particularly meaningful, even with Wong suddenly being a pretty good player and, and Verdugo being pretty good. Um, it was just, it was what it was, right? I mean, we all understood what it was, and you kind of go, well, this has to work somewhere down the line. 21's good. 22, uh, again, kind of surprising to me what a mess it turned into. What, what I wonder about with him is I, I wonder if he has, if, if he's sometimes too hesitant, right? Like, Look, he's smart. There's logic in everything that he does. There is incredible logic in saying, I'm not going to give Xander Bogarts 11 years. Like, that, that, that you don't have to, it's not hard to figure out, like, hey, or whatever. That you're, I think I'm mixing up with Turner, but that you, that you don't sign Xander for that deep into his career, right? You don't sign a shortstop through age 40. We all understand. Mm-hmm. But at some point, baseball requires, if you're going to play in free agency and if you're going to be the Red Sox with this budget, at some point you kind of have to do something that's a little bit dumb, right? I mean, yeah. free agent contracts for big-name players are not smart. They, they're not like, you know, there's nothing nifty about them. You go, hey, that guy's really good. I'm going to give him a lot of money and hope I figure out the rest sometime later. And And I wonder if that's one way that he's struggled i also you know if you look back at this offseason right he gets you know kind of knocked because he didn't get nathan avaldi back right and and avaldi's off having this great season they they were in it with avaldi i mean they 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 felt like they had a strong or if not the strongest offer for him stronger than what he wound up signing for avaldi doesn't take it at a time they go and they get kenley and then all of a sudden so some of that money's spent right and now you know, what are you going to do of all these still on the market? And, and he ends up taking the deal with Texas. The greatest strength of Dave Dombrowski is convincing billionaires to spend money. I mean, that, that is the, right. that's what I think Dombrowski does the best. He goes, look, if you want to do this, you got to give me this money to get this guy. And I don't know that Heim has that in him for better and for worse. Right. I mean, there, there is, I, I think that, you know, if you're ownership, you've got to like that he's trying to do things you know, the smart way or whatever. And and I think a lot of times he does, but I do wonder if sometimes, you know, does he have enough of the recklessness to him to go, uh, like, I'm going to convince him to give me this just because I think we need it um, instead of, you know, trying to find the, the, the smartest, best way to work around it. Um, that's, that's where I wonder if there's a maybe a little bit of a weakness there. Yeah, I mean, I think you really nailed it there. And I I think one of the things that really um, causes the Boston fan base to be a little alienated by that is because we as Red Sox fans are not logical about this team. We don't, <laughs> right. yeah. we don't look at this team as, you know, well, let's figure out the most efficient way to get to the most amount of wins that can get us into one of the last few wild cards. Like, we are just all in. Like, we loved Xander. We wanted Xander. 
we're okay with mistakes as long as your heart is in the right place. And it just feels like, like Bloom lacks that killer instinct to be able to get that guy in the way that Dombrowski would literally come out of a press conference and say, hey, we really need a front end pitcher. And then he'd <laughs> yeah. go out and sign David Price. And that was like, that was incredibly refreshing, especially following uh, Ben Charrington and, mm-hmm. and now having that being sandwiched in between two guys who are relatively conservative in Charrington and Bloom. It it feels like they're almost missing the sort of soul of Red Sox Nation with how Bloom acts in this market. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. But I also, I mean, look, the, the soul of Red Sox baseball the last however many years is still the Theo regime, right? Like, isn't that sort of where you go like, gosh, that's when we were at our best. Oh, yeah. And and, and I think that I think that's what Heim wants to be. I mean, that's what he references most. All the like, oh, he's trying to be Tampa North and all this. I don't think that's true. I think he's trying to be the Dodgers. I think he's trying to be what Theo was 20 years ago. I mean, I, I just... To, to me, that's sort of the goal, and maybe there is sort of a figuring it out process that's taking place here. I don't know. And, you know, you also go, well, look, he, <laughs> I mean, he finally, he signed the, the for a while there until this offseason, the only big reliever contract he'd given was to Matt Barnes, and it was like the second the ink was dry, he was an unusable pitcher. He goes <laughs> out and finally does give a big contract to Trevor Story, and then Story's, you know, hurt for part a big chunk of last season. You know, it just... You know, if there was anything that was going to make a guy who's maybe a little bit gun shy anyway, even more gun shy, it's that, you know, the few, a handful of times that he tried to do something that maybe was a little bit aggressive, you know, giving any amount of money to a reliever, finally given a big contract to a shortstop when you have Xander Bogarts on the team at the time, like th- th- those things kind of blowing up. I wonder if there's a chance that that made him go like, oh, uh oh. This is and you know the the one like another big mistake he makes is giving up Jeffrey Springs right like the, right. the one where you're like ah oh, you know he he, he maybe yeah. wishes he'd stuck to his guns there um, I don't know I mean I, I again I do yeah I, I still think he's look he's smart he's surrounded by a lot of smart people when they talk about things I think they make sense but at some point I do wonder you know you do kind of have to do the the kind of dumb thing every once in a while with the trying to be like. Theo, one of the, I guess maybe two of the things that stand out, um, Theo, uh, with being really good on the edges, would also spend big in free agency mm-hmm. when they needed to, which seems like, uh, you know, until Trevor Story, um, and then this offseason, they've been a, a bit hesitant to do. Yeah. And uh, even on kind of some of the edge moves, when Bloom has been right with guys like Perez and Hunter Renfro, mm-hmm. he's been quick to let them go. Yeah, and not not retain them, which was something that Theo would also do. Yeah, why do you why do you think he does that? Yeah, I don't know, but I mean, Perez, uh, Perez is an easier one for me to give him a pass on, right? Like I don't, I didn't. Yeah, I was like, yeah. I mean, I was also a little bit like, uh, I don't know that you want this guy back. Renfro, in retrospect, that move does feel like trying to be too cute, right? Like he has this big year, and it did feel like a career year. I remember when they did it and they got Jackie and I kind of felt like, all right, I can see how they're kind of going to make this work. And you try to capitalize on Renfro and, and that you could make, you know, because of Kike on the roster. And there were all these ways you could manipulate things now that Jackie's there. And it just never 
the prospects that he got back in that deal didn't really work with Benelis and 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 Jackie was you know brutal frankly a lot of times at the plate and so yeah I I don't know why unless it is just you know in that case just almost felt like trying to take what you have here and, and maximize it right now rather than like you said like commit to him um yeah I don't know that but I I don't know a reason for that because we've also seen him do the extension with Barnes we saw him do the extension with Devers um the extension last year with Kike Hernandez to make sure you have him back for this season like there's been a willingness to you know maybe not do the big you know a, other than Devers, like a huge 10-year contract or something, but there hasn't really been that opportunity, I don't think. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I don't know why in those particular examples he, he, you know, shied away from an extension when that, in retrospect, would have been the thing to do. Well, we've been, we've been beating up on Bloom a little bit here, so I'm going to ask you, um, you know, what do you think that he's done well since he's been here? One of the things that we've heard a lot about that's a little bit difficult for us to really see is all of the work that he's put in on the minor league side. You mentioned that's where you got your start, but you know, things like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, building up the coaching staffs and, you know, getting more state of the art equipment at these facilities and working on things like nutrition. These are all things that like we don't see as fans, but apparently he's doing some of those things. So can you talk a little bit about some of the things that he's rumored to be doing well? (laughs) Yeah, I, well, I, I do think that's happening, um, but but also, frankly, like you know, figuring out, you know, whether a team's doing well with, you know, coaching or analysis or scouting or whatever is always a little bit. To me, it's always difficult because again, you start to hear, you know, stories of you know when you talk to these guys. Again, it all sounds so reasonable, and you're going like, oh yeah, this guy really knows what he's doing, um, and then you know the organization again hits like a wall in terms of, you know, having pitchers ready to be able to step in and help out, you know? Um, So I do think he's done a good job of kind of modernizing the organization and to hear guys talk about it too. Brian O'Halloran talked about this. Jim McCaffrey wrote it a a few months ago about how they kind of realized that they had fallen behind the times. And then that happens to coincide with, with Heim coming in and that sort of really pushed them to do more of that stuff behind the scenes. He has, I think done a good job Better, I guess, than what Dombrowski did in terms of, you know, thinking a little bit ahead, if that makes sense. Like those, you know, something like team options and all that stuff, making sure there's something there. Not that a lot of these things have played out that well. He has done a good job of, you know, giving himself the wiggle room for the future and not making like massive commitments down the road that give him opportunity. But then you got to do something with that opportunity, right? And so I think he's... He's sometimes set the stage for something. He's given himself the opportunities that he wants, and then it's a matter of are you now ready to, to then actually make that mean something? And, and I think that's where we haven't really seen it so far. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Chad, you know, we talked about it a little bit, but with the, um, you know, some of the shorter contracts that Bloom mm-hmm. has given out, the one, two year contracts kind of trying to squeeze the remaining value out of some older veterans. It's worked with Justin Turner and, you know, Michael Waka a year ago, but then others talked about Martin Perez, but Garrett Richards was another one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with the the starting pitcher pool this offseason, you know, there was 
Chris Bassett and Kodai Senga and Zach Eflin and Andrew Heaney and mm-hmm. a lot of interest and they made some solid offers and trying to get Evaldi back and all that. But they landed on Corey Kluber, who is really the only <laughs> yeah. ten plus million dollar pitcher and on the low end of ten million um right. you know, in that ten to twenty range, not talking about the DeGroms or the Verlanders, but you know, how do you feel about that approach and is there any reason in your mind that that might change going forward? I mean, they are under, at least right now, they're under the mm-hmm. competitive balance tax and everybody knows that Shohei Otani is going to be a free agent next year. But kind of with what we've seen in this era, it's hard for me to imagine them making a competitive uh, bid for Otani or for Soto the year after. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I yeah, the pitching thing this year... Confused me because I my understanding throughout was that they were targeting, you know, not the top. They weren't going to try to get to Grom or Verlander, but that they were right. that that yeah, it was not going to be you know another Garrett Richards like they're they have twelve guys at basically the same spot and they'll just see which one takes the deal they want to give him right that exactly. they, that that it was a much smaller pool that they were looking at very specifically targeted you know at that sort of you know, the Eflin Evaldi world, right? And uh, I'm surprised that they weren't... On on Eflin, they kind of got screwed on it, right? Like, they had the highest bid, and they didn't realize that the... It's my understanding of it anyway, is that they didn't Use realize... Use them as that leverage. They, yeah. And then, and so... And again, I don't... You know, it feels like something kind of fell apart on Evaldi, but I don't, I don't know. There's a part of me that also says, look, if you're... You're the Red Sox, man. Like you can't the, these toss-up situations. You can't lose those. Um, and and so I'm surprised that it happened w- with that because I do think that they that they really wanted a, a top end, not top top end, but a better starting pitcher than than what they got. And they wound up with basically the same thing they've been getting. Right. I mean, that's what Kluber was in that same bucket. I mean, he. I don't. I didn't expect him to be this bad. But I, I mean, he was, but he, I didn't think he was going to be more than like a number four, you know, four or five type. He was just going to be a guy who threw strikes and, and you hope you play defense behind him. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, they, they were talking about it as if they were going after a number two. And right. then all those names that we mentioned, the Sengas and Eflins and, you know, yeah. Bassett, they're all Heaney. They're all in their early 30s. Eflins 29, yeah. Kluber being 37. And the whole time I'm looking at it like, they're going to end up with Corey Kluber, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. It did at some point start to feel like, oh no, like I see where this is going. Um, you know, saying I think they got spooked by medicals, which I don't think they were alone in that. Okay. Um, you know, again, the reasonable choice is being made, but ah, you know, like at some point, you know, yeah. you got to do something bigger. Yeah, overly reasonable, I think, is the thing that keeps uh, biting Bloom here. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, I do think that's what I think it is. Like, I do, I, individual decisions, a lot of them, if they're just in a vacuum, you look at it and you think, well, I see the logic in that. Um, but <laughs> you can't have a whole off season of, I see the logic in that. Right. I mean, especially not going into next off season with Otani and... You know, the next year with Soto on the table, someone's going to get real unreasonable when it comes to those two players. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I guess that leads to my next question. If the team finishes in last again this year or simply fails to make the playoffs, do you believe that ownership will move on from Heim Bloom at this point? Because 
There are franchise-altering decisions to be made this year with Otani and next with Soto and so on and so on. Yeah, and they've been willing to do it in the past, right? Right. They knew Charrington. They liked Charrington. Um, It worked briefly and then wasn't working, and they made a drastic change. I mean, Dombrowski won him a World Series and was out 11 months later, so they... This ownership group has been willing to do that. Has been willing to pull the plug on something that that they don't think is working. What's interesting to me about this is they do seem to be very. They seem to be on the same page, right? So, I mean, this feels like what they want their head of baseball operations to be doing. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to be the fall guy for this, and it doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't deserve to be. But I'm just saying that's that's the thing that I that I have a harder time. Uh, kind of wrapping my head around about where ownership would be on that is that I, it just feels to me that this is, that this is at least the, the individual ideas fit within the way they think the team should be run. And so are you then going to make a change when, uh, when your own ideas also weren't working and, and they might, but, but I think that's the wild card in it. Kind of along those lines, the, in a vacuum, the Red Sox are a winning team. They are on a six-game win streak. Uh, and even though they're in last, they are having success right now. Mm-hmm. Why does it feel like so many of the Red Sox fan base have kind of thrown in the towel on this year already, even though they're only a game out of a playoff spot? Yeah, some of it I think is just when, they're, when they've been bad, they've been real bad. You know, like, I mean, they had a that, – that last month or so was – I mean, it was rough. And, and there's just such a buildup of this, right? I mean, when Heim came in and immediately traded Mookie, I think everybody was on high alert, right? Like, and, and you know, 21 season wasn't going to be enough to erase all of that. So I think that everyone's going into it very skeptical and understandably so, right? Nothing has been done here to, to really prove otherwise. So I think that's why. Like, every good thing in, in this climate every good thing is seen as a a momentary blip and you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop and so i think that's why even when they're playing well there's just this i think people have gotten really used to the this feeling of doom and gloom around the corner right and um and you know there there's you know bayo finally starting to to really pitch well you know if if casas can really start to hit i think maybe some of that maybe starts to change because you do start to see some future here. But up until this point, I mean, you just haven't seen that enough, I think, to to overpower everything else. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So with all that in mind, uh, do you think the Red Sox are going to be buyers or sellers at the trade deadline this year? And if they're buyers, who do you think might be some pitchers that they can target? Oh, geez. You know, I don't... I have a hard time. I, sorry, this is me staggering because because I cover the Red Sox and you don't really know what in the world they're, <laughs> where they are, right? I'm sure they didn't even know last year. Spot. I mean, they were yeah. doing both. So I think yeah. I, I do think last year, if they'd gotten, my understanding is if they'd gotten a decent offer for something meaningful for JD or Evaldi, I think they were totally happy to trade him. Um, I don't think the market was what people thought it was going to be for those guys. You know, JD wasn't really hitting at the time of all these velocity had dropped it. I don't think the market was, I think they were ready to do more selling than they did. 
Um, but when that market wasn't there, yeah, they did their little half measures thing. And, you know, maybe it, maybe they do that again, but, but you'd certainly hope not, right? I mean, there's a lot of talent in the lower levels. It's just, is anybody going to be willing to take a lower level prospect to make a trade? Because that didn't really seem to be the market this winter. You know, you couldn't move some of those lower, those lower level guys to get an impact player. Um, so, you know, even if they do want to, even if they wanted to buy, I don't know, you know, what do you have in the upper levels that you could give at this point that would that would do it, right? Because you're not going to move Cassis and you're not going to move Bayo, and that's what everybody's going to ask for. Um, so so I don't know. I mean, I it, it kind of wouldn't shock me to see them do kind of a, a, some light buying, like a Schwarber-type deal, you know, if you can find that, that right thing where they try to thread the needle and, and get something like that without having to give up a, a huge guy. Um, I, they, it's going to take a lot to me to, in my mind, it's going to take a lot for them to sell. I think the, these guys know if, if they're selling at the deadline, they're giving up like, and I'm talking about giving up jobs maybe, right? Like this is that if, if they're going to have to admit that they have to punt again, I, I just I think they're going to be way too aware of what that can mean for their futures in terms of employment to actually do that. Now, if they're horrible, they're going to have no choice. But I think that if they at all can justify it, I think they'll try to avoid selling um, and at least try to stay somewhere in the hunt if they're remotely in it. Uh, that may not mean buying big, but I think they'll try to stay in it and, you know, convincing themselves, hey, story's coming back and sales coming back and we're going to get all these boosts anyway. And so just stay the course and we'll be better. Um, I think that's possible. Uh, I was just going to say that was the thing last week is we had a completely different tone on this show because they were about five and a half games out and it yeah. seemed uh, very likely that they would go that direction and it was a matter of who would be making those deadline deals because as right. you said, if Hyam Bloom's job is on the line, he's probably not going to want to sell if he can justify it. Right. But if they're five and a half games out and they've got James Paxton and can get a huge return as compared to, you know, some of the injury guys that you mentioned last sure. year. It, it's a lot more kind of um, interesting trade group that they have this year if everybody's healthy. Oh, yeah. No, look, look, if they're bad and this thing is like, if, if the feeling is what it was, whatever, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. I mean, I I think at some point, you know, if Heim somehow tells them he's just not willing to sell, I think they'd have to go, well, all right, we have to make the move now and whatever, you named BOH, the interim head of baseball operations, and he's under the directive to sell. I, I don't know what you, you know, whatever, just as a hypothetical, theoretical thing. Right. Um, if, they're, if they're just awful and have to do it. But I just think they, I think everyone involved here wants to avoid selling, if at all possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because I, I think that, like you said, Bloom is certainly got to be aware of the fact that as, as, Closely aligned as the strategies seem to be between ownership and Bloom, um, which you mentioned before, you know, it would be a huge sea change for this ownership to suddenly commit to somebody despite public opinion and despite the results on mm -hmm. the field, because we've seen them really be pretty aggressive with other GMs in the past and changing things up when things don't work. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, I, and that's what I'm saying. Even though my feeling is that ownership's been on board with everything, look, they've been willing to do it. And, you know, that was all those years that I spent covering the Yankees. I always kind of felt that way that I just didn't, I, I didn't think the Steinbrenner 
I didn't think Hal wanted to go through the process of making a change, right? Cashman's been there forever. He likes him. I don't, I don't think they want to do anything there. Um, these guys are willing to do it. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think they're willing to. I just, I'm, I'm, I am curious to see how much they, you know, at some point, you know, you said you believed in this vision, uh, you know, how much is that's on you and how much of it's on him. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other guy who has to be thinking about his job as well is Alex Cora. So mm-hmm. let's let's start off with how Cora's done this season. How do you think he's performed this season with this group of guys? I, fine. I, I I still think that Cora is. I think he's a fine manager. I really do. I think he I think he does a pretty good job with these guys. I think that you know we all know at, at stretches here what he's had in the bullpen to to make decisions with. We know the situation he's had with the infield defense. You know, there's only so much he could do about some of these things. Um, so, you know, I think he's done all right. And I, I, in the look, the feeling around the team in spring training was great at a time when I think that pessimism was, you know, really high around the team. Um, and so I, I mean, I think he's done a fine job. I think he's now, I mean, you know, does that mean that he's definitely like the guy who needs to be here the whole time? I, I don't know. I'm not necessarily saying that, but, I think he's done fine. I mean, this is a, a lot of a lot of the frustration and disappointment here. I think has been much more to do with, you know, holes in the roster and, you know, things like the performance of Kluber early in the year. You know, it takes a while to finally bump him to the bullpen. You know, things like that. That uh, I, I don't know. A lot of that's kind of out of his hands. You've been covering Cora for a while now. Looking past just this season, what do you think are some of his strengths as a manager? And what are some of the things that he still struggles with? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to think about that. That I mean, I do think his strength is for one. For one, strength is I think an ability to connect with players and and having some sense of how to talk to them. But I do wonder. You know, I would have said one of his harder things is maybe, you know, well, I, even as I'm saying this, as I, I thought it earlier, but like. He's made some tough choices too, right? I mean, you know, getting rid of Hanley, um, you know, this year with, you know, finally telling Kike you're going to take him off shortstop to play a minor league journeyman at the position instead. You know, those right. are not those are not fun conversations for him with with people he knows and likes. Um, you know, so I think maybe he's been willing to do that. Um, I don't know. I mean, he's. He's been and he's been kind of willing to sometimes get out of the box a little bit. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's I always have a hard time with the whole like, you know, managers, coaches, all that stuff. I just think there's there are so many issues that are happening there that we don't know about, right? Like, right. That that I do I, not, and that's not to say he's it's good or bad. It's just that I think it's always hard to evaluate the performance they're doing like i hate i've a handful of times when i've had manners of the year votes and i'm like i don't know i mean <laughs> I, you know what what we just pick a team we thought was going to suck and we decide their manager is the best manager i <laughs> I, I don't know like it, it to me it really is hard to evaluate i know that's not a particularly fun answer um but i but i do think it's true like i, I th- those that stuff is it's sometimes harder to know and you end up finding out a lot of times as stuff goes really sideways and players start to talk more about some of the stuff going on behind the scenes that you're like, oh, and and I don't think we've reached that point so far with Alex, right? Where, where you're not hearing the sort of rumblies and and grum, you know, players aren't grumbling about him a lot, and you start to feel like, oh, okay, he's 
lost the clubhouse or he's lost a feel for what the team needs. Um, you know, I, I, like something like the other day when he announced that Turner is going to play more first base over Casas. I don't think they're going to do that. I, I don't. I I think that was all a kick in the pants for Casas. Like I, yeah. I think they don't like the way he was doing work at first base. I think they and I think they were trying to give him wake up call. Like I don't think that's an actual thing. I think he's trying to send a message there. Um, so I, you know, he's there are things that are happening that I, it's a little bit harder to. I don't know. I just always find that a little bit harder to evaluate until until it's really a mess, right? Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm going to throw a scenario at you, though, because one of the things that we have complained about on this podcast from time to time, and generally, I think we all like Cora and for a lot of the reasons you said, but one of the things that can frustrate us is the way that he overuses bullpen arms, specifically mm-hmm. um, his leverage arms. You know, we, we saw Chris Martin hit the I.L., uh, earlier this year, you know, he was used several times in a row leading up to that. Uh, in past years, Matt Barnes, when he was actually good and usable, uh, he was used tremendously, uh, you know, uh, yeah. way more than he should have been in the first half uh, and then turned in a pretty poor second half. Uh, I believe that was two seasons ago. Um, so, you know, how much of that is to be blamed on Cora, how much of that is just simply, you know, he's trying to win ball games in the way that the the bullpen has been constructed over the last few years. It hasn't necessarily been a strength of the team. Um, you know, specifically last year, it was terrible. This year, it's been a whole lot better. But, you know, how much of that do you think is is on Cora? Yeah, it's funny. That's exactly the thing I was about to say is that I also think he's had a lot of bullpens with a massive disparity between like his top four or five arms and the bottom three or four. Right. Yeah. Like, and so, you know, I mean, like, let me look at the, if I can try to think through the guys who are in it now, I mean, you know, obviously you've got Kenley Winkowski's pitched well, he's got Martin and Pavetta's starting to do really well now. And he's starting to use him in more leverage situations. But I mean, after that, it's like two waiver claims, Jake's who's just now making his big league debut and Caleb Ort, like, I mean, you know, if you're in even mildly a winnable situation, it's, you know, now look, at some point he's going to have to start. He had, I agree, he has to trust those guys. And, and I think we've seen him do that a little bit with, with Bernardino and, and even Garza's pitched all right. Um, yeah. But, but I, I think that's part of it. Cause I do think he's with position players. I wonder if you could almost argue the opposite, right? That sometimes he's so cautious, like the day in Tampa when he played Dahlbeck at short, like that was entirely because he just decided he wanted to give Arroyo a day off. Like he could have played Christian Arroyo that day. He had he had Yu Chang still healthy. He had Kike Hernandez in the lineup. Like he w- was so committed to giving guys a day off that he played Dahlbeck at short. Hmm. Um, and so it's interesting to have a guy who will go that far sometimes with position guys. Um, and I do think that he tries to stay away from his starters when he can. I mean, he talks a lot about the whole, you know, yellow, red, and green on his card and all that. But I think a lot of it is just the, the, the overwhelming disparities had sometimes between the, the top relievers and then those bottom three or four. It makes you wonder if any fan base is ever happy with how their manager manages the bullpen. Yeah. It's all, it's also just like the easiest thing to, and this is not, I mean, this is what you should be talking about. I like guess not knocking you guys at all, but it's like such a, it's easy to go like, ah, well, if you put that guy there and like, ah, you maybe didn't need that guy today. I, again, I don't know. I always feel like there are, again, like I said, there are so many things with the manager and the decision-making that I think that 
it's it's a little bit hard to feel like we have the the total picture a lot of times. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's where I struggle with some of it. Well, let's wrap up the core discussion with this. Um, you know, similarly to Bloom, if this thing goes south in a hurry and this team ends up selling, is Cora in just as much danger as Bloom is of losing his job, or do you think that he's got a little bit more rope? Well, I, I would. My feeling would be, I wonder if it's a one or the other situation, right? The, the kind of, the, you almost feel like it's which voice to the, the would ownership want to keep around, right? Do they value Bloom's voice more, or Cora's voice more? Because if they're if they're bad again, they're going to have to make some sort of change. Um, you would think. Um, again, they seem to like both of these guys. Um, but I, yeah, I, so anyway, I mean, that's a long winded way of saying like, sure he could be, but I think he could be in the, just basically in the same way that Bloom is where it's like, which, which, uh, yeah, which voice do, does ownership decide that it really wants to have here? Because if, if this thing isn't working three out of four years, I, I think those guys would want to make some sort of change and which one of those two voices would they want to keep around as the constant? If you were a betting man, which one? Uh, you know, I just given their history, I I think they'd lose. I, if I had to bet, I guess I'd bet Bloom's the one to go. Yeah, right. That's how and I they, feel too. And they, you know, they kind of they so went out of their way to get you know bring Cora back, you know, after everything, and yeah, I, that seems like they really like him, and and I do think. You know, yeah, he's he's done a good job here. I think that ownership likes him. I think, and so yeah, if that if I guess if I had to bet, that's where I would go. Um, but you know, no one speaks to John Henry very often, so it's hard <laughs> to have a great feel for what he's thinking. I actually have a funny John Henry story. I was at a, a game and I was in a a nice box there with with some nice tickets, and as the game ended. I was standing out in the hallway and apparently we were very close to John Henry's box and I got ushered out of the way by a a few of the security guards and I had no idea what I was getting moved for, but apparently (laughs) I was getting moved. So I, John Henry didn't have to walk past any other human beings. Uh, So apparently he, he does not like human contact. (laughs) Yeah. Who's in my way? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, he's a, He's an interesting fellow. Yeah. <laughs> Chad, we've uh, yeah. talked a lot on this show about the middle infield some weeks for an uncomfortably long amount of time, but kind of yeah. how unprepared the team seemed to be for the season and then continued in season, you know, going back to how they handled Xander Bogarts a year before free agency, um, but more recently, just how they didn't prioritize any backup plans there, you know, trading for Adalberto Mondesi, who's just made a living on the injured list for years now, um, and then moving Enrique Hernandez, who's 31 years old and had very little experience at the position. I don't think any of us were surprised how that worked out. Um, and then now more recently using Pablo Reyes, who, as you mentioned, was a minor leaguer coming from Oakland. I mean, this happened a year ago with Franchi and Dahlbeck at first and with the bullpen where, you know, we are sitting here week after week and even in the preseason looking at this and saying there's a a major gap here. When are they going to do something? They're going to do something, right? And then they haven't. And then you see that position costing them games defensively, numerous games, you know, with the throwing errors this year and all of that. Um, Are you surprised by how little they did 
before the season and then in season to try to, you know, to continue to stick with that plan while it was costing them games. Yeah, I mean, I am. And I, it, I think that, you know, their counter argument would be that they did that. I think they contend that they did try to do things right, that they always thought right. more highly of Yu Chang than people did and that, you know, that he was showing it right in that brief time when he was basically the everyday shortstop. He was excellent defensively um, that they didn't. As much as Bonacy had been hurt, they thought that that was a, a a decent sort of depth move, right, to give them some some insurance. I don't think they thought, I, you know, I, I'm not surprised that Kike Hernandez was not a, has not been a standout at short. I'm a little bit surprised that he was that bad defensively. Um, I wasn't. I never was all that sold that he was going to hit that much, but I, I was surprised to see him be that struggle with it that much. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right. It it, 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 it it totally surprised me that they got to that point, um, that they let it get to a point where, you know, you could just look at it and go, golly, the, I mean, you know, past, past the guy who's never been an everyday shortstop who you're playing at shortstop, your best bets are, you know, the guy, Yu Chang, fresh off a million times on the waiver wire, and <laughs> Alberto Mondesi, who, you know, God knows what he has at this point, and Christian Arroyo, who clearly is better off at second base than at shortstop. And, you know, David Hamilton, who we all, you know, every report you've ever seen says he's probably more of a second baseman or maybe even center fielder than he is shortstop. Um, you know, and, and Rafaela, who hadn't really hit enough in, you know, wasn't, they clearly, I mean, they sent him to double A to start the year, right? They clearly were not considering him like the next in line guy. So they right. had some guys there, but I am surprised they didn't do more. I, I think there's one interesting thing about the, the free agent market that, you know, you had the big four shortstops. And if once they decided they weren't going to spend at that level on a shortstop, right, and if they weren't going to do it for Xander, they're not going to do it for anybody, it did have, the drop-off was noticeable, right? It's not like Elvis Andrus has been a guy that you wish they had, right? He's been pretty awful. Um, Iglesias can't even, like, stay with a team. So, you know, there, I don't know what the, like, sort of ideal fallback plan was unless you try to, you know, in retrospect, should they have made a trade for Paul DeYoung or something, maybe? Um, you know, he's been fine. Like I, I'm a little bit surprised that a team that has spent four years focused this heavily on depth um, wound up in a situation where Bobby Dahlbeck played a game at shortstop in the big league. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I mean, even, even, even though the circumstances were what they were or whatever, it still just became this, like, illustration of what this is and that even if you dismiss that one because of various circumstances i mean they made a conscious decision to make pablo reyes their everyday shortstop for a while here so yeah for a team that has focused so much has talked so much about depth and has talked so much about contingency plan and seems to have made that like just such an overwhelming priority to people's frustration that it could get to that point is uh is pretty baffling yeah, I, I think there were, you know, a few names in the trade market. DeYoung's a good one. I'm sure that the Cardinals would have pretty much given him away, even though he had a larger salary, you know, mm-hmm. pay 33% of the salary and take a chance on, you know, somebody with experience and, um, you know, had been a, a good hitter in the past. I mean, you mentioned Iglesias, but in the last three seasons when he's in the league, he's hit 293 from 2020 to 2022 yeah. combined. It's just, I, I know that he's not flashy but he's been here twice and it yeah. went well the last time you know yeah. it just seemed yeah. like some more just emergency options i mean they sent Dahlbeck to triple a and he was 
playing shortstop down there as the contingency plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They yeah. needed the contingency plan. So it was like during that time, it would have been nice if they, you know, took a couple more shots of. Um, yeah, I'm you with know, you. Really. Yeah, I mean, no, you're not. I don't. I I can't say I disagree. I mean, I know that yeah. they, you know, they talked to the Marlins a lot about. Miguel Rojas and, and Joey Wendell, you know, maybe you should have pulled that trigger. But again, Rojas has been pretty brutal. Yeah, um, he's done so, nothing. Yeah, so I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, I, I, it just feels like, <laughs> I almost feel like even though I can't come up with the perfect answer here, like that's not my job. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. I just, I just can't help looking at it and going like, I still just don't know how you got into a position where Pablo Reyes was your everyday shortstop. I feel well, like it's a little easy to to maybe write off the, or maybe not write it off, but make excuses for not it being addressed in the off season. Cause off seasons are weird. Sometimes priorities mm-hmm. change. Sure. But to me, what's confusing is just how long they've gone on not addressing it in season now. Right. And is it, did, did it just expect maybe that the guys who are injured would be back by now? Or did they really just think they could kind of patch together until something happened? Yeah, that's, it's, that's interesting. And I hadn't thought about that, but you, there may be something to be said for that because they've talked about. I remember being in spring training the first day Mondesi played, got out on the field, and you know everyone was like, "Oh man, he's moving really well." And Mondesi's talking at the time about he thought he could make the opening day roster. Then now they were all sort of saying like, eh, "I mean, probably not." But they got to the end of spring training thinking he was like a matter of weeks away that he was gonna like they thought he was pretty close to like getting into game so then at that point you know you wonder if early in the year you know coming out of spring training if they feel like uh you know we probably should have something other than Yu Chang as our backup plan here but they were pretty optimistic about Mondesi right and then he kind of hits this wall he was on the 60 day IL five minutes later (laughs) yeah right 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 yeah so it's so he he so your point about do they keep thinking guys are coming back and obviously now for like what three weeks now they've been talking about Yu Chang is like on the verge and it's like every time he swings a bat he feels it in his hand again um so i do think maybe that's some of it right that they're they i do think you're right that they do seem to be kind of always feeling like you know an upgrade is right around the corner right that early in the season they're going to get mondesi well all right mondesi's not coming but hey chang is really playing really well playing really good defense at short maybe he's going to be the solution which clearly they were trying to set that up right they started playing him at short every day um I think they maybe have felt like they've had an internal solution on the verge um, that just hasn't happened because you're right. It is a little bit weird that they've, you know, they've, they've, they've noticed it enough to make, again, not to, not to knock the guy over and over again, but they've noticed it enough that they've decided Pablo Reyes is going to be their everyday shortstop. They clearly are at that point aware that there's a problem. Sure. You know? Um, so I'm so, yeah, I think you're right. It's surprising to see him not do something here. Can I uh, ask you quickly about um, Trevor's story, though? You know, before mm-hmm. we we move on to talking about where he's going to play and things like that. But looking back to the original signing of Trevor's story, we talked about how risk averse Bloom seems to be. But with this signing, this was puzzling to me um, because everybody knew that he had a bad elbow mm-hmm. uh, heading into that signing, and I know that. They said they checked the medicals and everything was fine, but clearly, I mean, other teams were scared away. He was one of the last guys to sign during that offseason. Guys were clearly worried about, um, you know, the medicals there. Why did the Red Sox decide to yeah. sort of push their chips in <laughs> yeah. with, with him? And we've, we've seen how that's gone. It hasn't gone well. Yeah, it, 
I, I wonder though if that comes back to the same thing over again. Like we we're talking about earlier how like you've got to at some point take the risk. And I wonder if they finally like that was the one they decided to take, right? Like, yes, there's some risk with the arm, but if they're thinking their fallback plan is, hey, look, we don't have a second baseman of the future either. So if he does come in the elbows and he's not throwing well, fine. He becomes the second baseman of the future and we just try to address shortstop another day. They end up, you know, whatever. Everything happens with Xander. They botch it all in spring training and and then Trevor gets hurt. I think that that feels like a team that has been as risk averse as the Red Sox have been, you know, that, that they finally decided that they were going to have to take the risk, right? You take a, take the chance, make a commitment that maybe doesn't make you feel like super confident that it's going to be okay. And, and they got bit by it, you know, that just, it hasn't worked. And that, that happens often with these deals, right? I mean, look at, Jacob deGrom, right? Like the, these, it, it's, it becomes a debacle often. And, and so that's, that's where they are. I mean, I think that Trevor Story, if you're, Trevor Story is sort of the cautionary tale of why executives try to ex- operate the way Heim has, right? Like that those things, you make a huge commitment and if it doesn't work, you're kind of screwed. And, and so that's, that's where they are. They, they took the chance, made the big commitment and, so far, it really has not paid out, uh, paid off for them at all. It, it, the thing that always struck me with that deal, though, you know, everything that you said aside was just the the wandering eyes there with Xander Bogarts mm-hmm. being right there on your team, one of the most durable players uh, in you know recent Red Sox history, a guy who was playing that premium position. Um, I know they weren't completely thrilled with his defense, but. It just really felt like they could have just taken the money that they were going to give to Trevor Story, presented it to Xander Bogarts, and it really seemed like he wanted to be here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably a fair point. They they should have made the bigger commitment to Xander, but I still think they thought they were going to be good last year, right? Yeah. I mean, they're coming off of a good 21. I think they wanted to put somebody around those guys. Um, you know, they probably knew they were going to move on from J.D., I think they knew that, you know, but I, I, I really think, I think that they, they saw that as a, I think they saw Trevor Story as both, right? He was going to be a very good fit for them for what they thought was going to be a, a decent team in 22. And he was sort of an insurance policy for them, you know, if they couldn't get Xander. Um, yeah. And then it just, again, you know, the elbow goes and, and now you're screwed. Yep. Uh in regards to story, you know, some of the recent interviews, he's been pretty adamant that he is, is a shortstop on this team, that that's mm-hmm. his natural position. He was on with Rob Bradford on his podcast the other day, just talking about that, you know, very matter of factly, um, you know, that he hopes to DH first until he's ready to play shortstop. But, you know, I think if you kind of obviously there's the elbow issue that contributed to the differing defensive metrics, but he was plus 10 outs above average, you know, in the top three percentile last year at second base. So, you know, when I look at it, it's if if he's cleared earlier to play second base, they could really use a middle infielder here. Um, And if he played that for a month or six weeks or whatever, and with the eventual goal to get him to shortstop, it, it just seems that that might be the better move for the team in a playoff race. And, I don't know, just kind of the tone of the comments um, makes me wonder whether that is what's best for the team and whether, 
you know, everybody's on the same page with that. I, I don't know how you yeah. kind of read into that. Well, th the main thing is they all think they're shortstops. I mean, Dustin <laughs> Pedroia retired thinking he was a shortstop who just happened to play second base most of his career, right? Like right. They, 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 all of these guys, <laughs> if they reasonably have any claim to playing shortstop, they all still think they're a shortstop. So yeah. I, it doesn't surprise me to see Trevor saying publicly, like, yeah, I think I'm a shortstop and that's where I expect to play. Of course he does. I mean, of course he does. Um, I, I to me, the question is more like the, I think your idea of playing him at second for a while rather than DH is, is maybe a good one. I, I don't know. It's hard to, they have a lot of know. DHs. Yeah. That's, and that's some of it. I want, you know, if, if Casas like goes into another total funk where he's, you know, not producing anything, do you, you know, try to, maybe you could send him down for three weeks, play Turner at first. DH story, hope Casas figures it out and then bring him up and, you know, Turner goes back to DH and story goes to shortstop. You know, maybe there's a way to move things around to do that. Sure. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I just think playing him, I, I, I think that, I mean, part of it is I think they just kind of like Arroyo at second. I think they think he's pretty good defensively there. And, you know, if you're not going to, it's like how much is second base solving the problem, right? If you're, if you're playing Trevor at second, you know, it's almost like you might as well DH him if you can um, and, you know, try to work through whatever army. I don't know what the exact process yeah. is. No, it's not an obvious, to to the, the puzzle yeah. pieces are not obvious for sure. Right, right. That, and that's, so maybe that's part of the problem. But him, but as far as like a disconnect and, and the way they're thinking, I, I don't think the DH thing is off the table at all. Um, but as for Trevor saying, yeah, I'm only a shortstop and that's the only place I like, I mean, of course he does. <laughs> yeah. just, I, I mean, that's just the way it goes. Okay. From a defensive run save perspective though, from uh, 2016 to 2021, uh, the, from shortstop, the, mm -hmm. the list of defensive run save leaderboard is Anderson Simmons, Nick Ahmed and Trevor Story. Yeah. Well, yeah, he was good. When he could throw, he was good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just don't know if he can still do that. Um, but also as bad as some of the shortstop play has been, I mean, maybe you just that you just accept that, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Also worth noting, Anthony and Simmons, still a free agent. Yeah, man. Let's do that. <laughs> That'd be fun. Uh, <laughs> Tristan Casas has been hitting much better recently mm -hmm. um, and even has a couple of hits tonight as we speak, um, or at least one. Um you recently wrote a piece kind of focusing about uh, his play on the defensive side, though. Mm -hmm. uh, and you actually even started to kind of get into it uh, a little bit earlier in this podcast. And I wanted to ask you a question about that because you mentioned um, his uh, pregame routine and the coaches wanting him to get uh, some work around the bag and how his uh, pregame routine has been a bit unique. And he tends to kind of practice uh, and work on a whole different kind of array of uh, different scenarios and positioning. And um, there are some quotes in there from the coaching staff about the, wanting him to emphasize more of his work around the bag. Uh, but then a quote from Casas that said he has not been told um, by yeah. any of the coaches that he should mix up his pregame routine <laughs> yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, so I was curious uh, since that you wrote that story as that he changed his pregame routine at all, or is it still the same? No, I think that he has. I mean, he's talked about, like, you know, that they've talked about the need to take ground balls and all this stuff. I mean, I do, it, it, I have no doubt that it has changed. I mean, it, it was funny to me that, I mean, literally, like the day after 
Fabulous is telling me like how they changed the routine in Cleveland. Then I go to Casas and he's like, well, yeah, they've talked to me about this, but no, no, they, they don't want me to change my routine. Like, I don't, oh, all right. <laughs> no, that's great. But, the, but uh, okay. But I, don't, I, but I just think some of this too, again, you know, you're talking about Tristan is the, I mean, he's an interesting guy, right? He said the, the, the quirks of Tristan Casas are part of what make him great. And I think that he, he approaches defense sort of in, in, in some ways the way he approaches hitting, and it, it, it's the way he sees it, right? Like he thinks of hitting in a certain way, and I think he thinks of defense in a certain way too. And, and in his mind, making those plays, I mean, literally he'll make diving plays during fielding drills. Like he wants a ball hit where he's got to go dive to get it because he, and he's talking about, he's talking about like he wants to feel that. He wants to, to sort of put his body through that before a game. And I think the Red Sox are going like, fine. But look, like your diving play is not the thing that's going to make or break us here. Like <laughs> get better around the bag. You know, get your – I was also shocked when I, t- I told him, you know, the coaches have talked about that some of this is the pre-pitch routine and sort of like that like first step. And he was like, I've never once thought about pre-pitch and first step in my career. I'm like, well – that's wow. surprising, right? Like, I mean, the guy, I mean, he was a third baseman as a real young kid. Like, I mean, the ball's on you in a quarter of a second. Like, you don't, you're not thinking pre-pitch at all. <laughs> you're not prepared. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if maybe it's just that he doesn't think of it in those terms, right? And so that's where some of that comes from. Because I, I mean, I also just think that there's no way that, there's almost no way that's true, right? That he, that he genuinely has never once thought about his pre-pitch setup and about, yeah. an initial step toward the ball. Like maybe he thinks of it differently. Maybe he doesn't think of it using those words, but it, it's, it, it, there, there's just, I cannot imagine a player being as good as he is. And like genuinely, he's never once thought about the way he sets up and prepares for a ball as the, as, yeah. you know, as the pitchers come and set. Like that just doesn't make sense. That's pretty strange. Um, you know, Tristan Costas' quirkiness has become one of our favorite topics here at Over the Monster, and especially in our Slack chat. He's kind of a constant topic of discussion. And, uh, you know, I think we all really enjoy his quirkiness. But, sure. um, you know, you've been around the league a long time. Where does his unusual nature sort of rank amongst other unusual baseball players that you've oh. covered? Cause I'm sure you've covered quite a, a wide array of unusual people. Yeah. And it's funny, the guy who I, I, I had Ichiro for a few years in New York and he just, he did nothing like anyone I'd ever seen. Um, and you know, while that seems like an absurd comparison, it's, you know, I think that, I think Casas wants to be Joey Votto, right? And Votto, like, <laughs> sees the game. I mean, you hear Joey Votto talk about hitting, and you're like, what the hell? What is he ta- Like, how does he possibly hit thinking about hitting this way? This is crazy. And, <laughs> and, and I think that that's some of what Casas is. Like, I think if he – so that, that – I, I don't know that I can think of a comparison that's quite like Tristan is with, you know, some of the other, you know, the <laughs> – the you know, the sunscreen on his face all through spring training and the 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 quirks of the you know sunbathing on the field and all this stuff like it's 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 just he's a unique individual um i don't i can't think of of a player i've covered who's been quite like that in terms of a routine i think of yeah i do i think of guys like like anitra who kind of really had this own 
he did things in a, in a way that I've never seen before. Um, Do you have a best saw, Ichiro story in that sense? Uh, well, <laughs> well, this isn't right, like his routine, really, but I, I do remember them telling me that he, I did a story on his relationship with Jeter because they didn't really know one another that well and they became really tight and they kind of like had a mutual appreciation um, from afar. And the first day he ever took batting practice with the Yankees, Ichiro just started calling Jeter Sanderson. He just called him his, his middle name for like no reason. I, I don't know. Like, they, yeah, they weren't like old buddies that like, and he just was like, yeah, he just, he would always refer to Jeter as Sanderson. Like, I don't know why. I mean, I don't know. Seems incredibly disrespectful. Yeah. It's like, what a weird thing to do, right? Like, I'm not mad about it or anything. It was just like, all right. <laughs> he is an Ichiro story. Anytime I see one, it's a must read. That guy is just oh, man, uh, yeah. definitely incredible. No, oh, he was awesome. He was so fun. He he he. I was told once that he. So whenever we would ask him questions, right, as a group, he never, almost never, had the questions translated. And we, you could go up and have a conversation with Ichiro, no problem in English. But he would always have his. He would always give his answers in Japanese, and. I, the I had one of the somebody told me once that it was because if he ever misspoke in English, he was such a big deal in Japan that his fear was if he ever used an English phrase wrong that that would be headline news in Japan, and so he <laughs> just decided to not take the chance. Um, but it set up for like incredible comedy sometimes because then if he had a really funny line, he would hit us with that in English, and it was I, I wish I could think of some of the ones he said, but <laughs> you'd ask him a question if he had a funny answer. He wouldn't wait for the translation. He'd just hit us with the with the funny response, um, and so that was he was yeah he was a lot of fun to deal with. That's awesome. On the the hitting side for Costas, uh, I mentioned that he's been he's been doing a lot better as of late. And uh, Alex Spear actually had a tweet a little while ago that um, this month uh, Costas is hitting four hundred and slugging eight hundred against off speed pitches. Um, so this question was along the lines of, do you think he can make the adjustments needed to be an impact, uh, kind of bat here, mm -hmm. um, at the major league level? Um, but it appears that, um, he is actively doing that as things are going. Yeah. It, yeah. So even as his numbers were horrible, like a lot of the, or a lot of, even as his statistics were pretty horrible, right? Sitting like one, whatever, um. I still think that there were sort of like underlying indicators there that suggested he was doing some things okay enough to where you go like, all right, you know, compared to whatever the backup plan would be here, you know, maybe you do have to kind of give a guy a chance. And, and I think that's maybe one thing that, you know, in that situation, anyway, I think Cora did a good job of that, of like, you know, giving him some rope uh, to figure this out as long as there was data behind it saying look he's not totally overmatched here it's not like this guy's just getting crushed it looks like he is because he's hitting 190 but he, he is he's still having good at bats and all that stuff I still think he's gonna hit I, I really do I mean he's he, he's a good hitter he he puts a ton of work into it I, I do think he's gonna be fine and I think frankly where they are right now they have to give him a chance to do it like you've got to you, you, they have to stick with him right now, in my mind. You just kind of, you know, whatever. If Alex wants to give him sort of the kick in the butt with the, you know, hey, we're maybe not going to play you at first base every day thing, fine. But I, I still think you got to keep giving the guy every day at bats because, you know, you both need him this year and you need to, you know, really find out 
right now. In a year like this, you might as well also find out whether he's going to be somebody that's that's the solution for the future. Um, Chad, some of your you know best work on the athletic, at least what I appreciate is that end of month roundup that you've done for a few years now with the minor leagues, and yeah. um, you know there's always a lot of really interesting tidbits in there. Um, and you know with the last month that you did for May, a lot of it had to do with some of the arms that the, the May recap had Wilkham and Gonzalez and Isaac Coffey. Um, Angel Bastardo and Grant Gombrell. And then we've talked a little bit on our show about Shane Drohan and Luis Perales, uh, Elmer Rodriguez Cruz, Dalton Rogers. There's a lot of arms in the lower levels. You know, Drohan's up at AAA now. But could you kind of, do you think that some of those names are surpassing the AAA arms that are on the 40 man, you know, uh, between Mata and Murphy and Walter? Um, I don't know. It seems like the three of the, of those guys who are all on the 40 have regressed a little bit, um, you know, some with their control, some with injuries, um, you know, it, do you have a couple of favorites from that group of the, the rising arms? And oh. do you think any of those have a shot to be part of the big league rotation long-term over the others? Well, I mean, I, you know, I mean, Wickelman's been on the radar for a few years, so you kind of can't help but wonder if he can tap into all that to, yeah. You know, Johan's just an interesting guy. You know, he's certainly put himself more on the radar. I don't know if you necessarily think that, you know, a good month in double A was enough to say, oh, he's like a sure thing, you know, big league, you know, middle of the rotation guy. Um, right. My thing, again, I think because of the time I spent covering the minor leagues, my general rule, I, it's a little bit of like wake me up when they're in double A, right? Like, I, I, Obviously, professionally, part of my job is to sort of give people information and I want to be able to tell people, hey, here's a little bit of what's happening. Like most people don't want to follow the minor leagues every day. That's fine. But so those monthly things are kind of a here's a broad view of kind of what's going on here. But my it's almost like if I could my lead to every one of them, if I were being honest with people, would be like to ignore a lot of this. (laughs) Yeah, it's I, I. it's good. It's great. I, I, they're clearly some of those guys are making noise down there, getting themselves on the radar. They're becoming interesting. Again, wake me up when it's happening in Double A. And that's not to say that I dismiss any of this. It's just that's what the process is in my mind. A ball to me is kind of like the filter, right? Like you, you're just weeding guys out at that point. I think you, you start to, if you could, you could totally ignore what's happening in A ball in high A and below. And just every year go, oh, who are the new guys getting to double A this year? And you'll have a sense of who the real guys are. Sure. And, I, th- and, I think that so that, that's the way I think of it. I think that might be even more true now than it was before the elimination of some of the, the short season ball and some of these other things that kind of, you know, pushed everybody up a little bit. Right. Um, it, and one of the things that I think I've noticed over the last 10 years or so is that you don't see a lot of trades uh, happening around baseball for some of these low minors arms anymore. It seems yeah. like there's been this strong preference as it as it relates to trade deadlines for double A or higher prospects. Have oh. you noticed that as well? Oh, completely. Yeah, I mean that's. I think that's. I think that was one of the defining things of the Red Sox offseason. Frankly, I think they were ready to trade a bunch of those lower level guys. But there wasn't a market for that anymore. I mean, you look right. at the, that, that's why the Sean Murphy trade was what it was for even the A's, like wanted big league ready talent. The yeah. A's, man, like, what are you doing? 
Hey, it doesn't make any sense. But that's what everybody. That's that's everything. They everybody. The only thing that is really seen as a as a real commodity at this point is, you know, those guys who are kind of on the verge of of helping in the big leagues or who, or frankly, are young big league talent. Like that's what has value now. Every team I think feels like they've got some of the those sort of raw ingredients in the lower levels, and you kind of hope that, you know, your guys keep, you know, keep figuring it out as they move up. But yeah, I don't think that that's. You know, I mean, you know, Miguel Blaze is really good, but again, you gotta—he's not gonna have that much capital until he shows he can do it. You know, one shows he can stay healthy, and then really proves he can start doing it. You know, as he gets into Double A AA and Triple A, it's just, uh, yeah, I think that's just where the game is now. The those those lottery tickets of the lower level guys seem even more like you know who the hell knows um, than they used to. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's it's you know at least this is the most interesting crop of pitching prospects that I can remember the Red Sox having in some time. And you know I think it's fair to say that even Brian Bayo might be uh, the best pitching development uh, that they've had since maybe even John Lester at this point. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I sure, sure. I think that's possible. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. And the part of the, part of what's good about it right now is there are just so many of them. You know, we're talking about these lower-level guys, and I'm being sort of dismissive of it, but that's the, the, there's strength in numbers with that, right? If you can, you know, get a ton of guys, you know, most of them aren't going to end up making it through all the way, but you just get a ton of them, <laughs> and that's what they have right now, right? I mean, you, you could rattle off, you know, six or seven guys who are legitimately kind of on the radar at some level of a ball right now is doing something interesting, and you know, if two of them can break through, and one of them become a legit like, you know, whatever, number two or three, and the other guy can be a number five, hey, you've really got something there, you know? Yeah. Um, so the fact that there are so many that are kind of just doing enough to be like, all right, I see you, <laughs> you know, this is this is interesting what's happening here. Um, that's, a, that's a good indication, but, you know, we, we, we have to see it in the upper levels or, or it really doesn't mean anything. Absolutely. Well, Chad, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, getting to chat baseball with you for the last hour or so. And, uh, you know, I would urge everybody who's listening to this that isn't already a subscriber of The Athletic to go ahead and do that. Follow Chad and and Jen's work over there. It's fantastic stuff. Do you have anything cool coming up that you want to plug here uh, on the on the show? Oh, well, it's with with. Uh, I guess with Walter, I guess probably coming up tomorrow. I I had, had worked on something earlier about the all the efforts the Red Sox went through in 2020 to keep. We always talk about 2020 as a year that was like lost player development, right? Because all these guys were stuck at home and there was no minor league season. But you look at if, if Walter's up, you know Walter Cutter Crawford and Brian Bayo, all of whom had like kind of breakthrough moments in 2020. Um, you know Bayo got so much stronger. Crawford's coming back from. Tommy John and and really fix his mechanics that year and and that's when Walter like you know became a totally different pitcher basically on his own and and made himself a prospect the next year so to me that's an interesting thing with him up is you know they, they that year that we think of as this lost development because we weren't watching guys playing in the minor leagues there was a lot of development happening and and the success of that is is really impacting the the Red Sox pitching staff this season. So I'm, I'm writing that for tomorrow. 
Awesome. That sounds like a must-read piece. So definitely check it out and check out Chad Jennings at ChadJennings22 on Twitter. You can find Bob Osgood at BobOsgood15. You can find Keaton at the Spoken Keats, and you can find me at, at DevJake. We appreciate you all listening. We'll be back with you next week. Bye.